Listening Dog Media. DJ. How to DJ. How to DJ with Chris Hawkins. Hello, I'm Chris Hawkins and this is How to DJ. You have to play the right song at the right time. It has to be... There's all those little things and they're things that listeners should never really notice. I was getting myself set up for my show and my dad was saying to Terry Wogan, so, you know, Rob's obviously going to go into radio. What, what advice would you give? How secure is it and all of that? And he said, well, well, Mr. Harris, he said, to give you an idea with the security, I'm currently on the 13-week contract. I got to the station and I just... I was like, I just want to be the best. I just want to be the best I can be. And they have really, really helped me. And I just, I just love it. I love my job. A podcast exploring life stories, techniques, minds and experiences of much loved DJs, where I asked them to pick five questions from a box of 45. This is an extended episode and with strong language. With a DJ who presented on Radio 1 and has interviewed some of music's biggest stars. The first person I interviewed or actually would give me house room, was uh, Olivia Newton-John. He was one of the original lineup on Capital Radio. I remember on the first day I was at home and I listened to the start of Capital, with Dickie Attenborough saying this for the very first time is Capital Radio, and then David Simons playing Bridge Over Troubled Water, and I cried. He's presented on Virgin and Jazz FM, and now Boom Radio. They leave me alone to play the music and just get on with it, and I love it. Nicky Hall. Welcome to How to DJ. Thank you very much, Chris. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you for asking me. Thank you, Nikki. Nikki, what's your earliest memory of listening to the radio? My earliest memory would be a small white transistor radio that I had when I was about seven or eight. And I used to listen to Radio Luxembourg uh, under the bedclothes. I know that's an old cliche. But that's exactly what I did. Um, Then when I was about 10, my dad bought from one of those little wood catalogs, you know, the big kind of catalogs that you could buy everything from in those days. He bought this enormous Russian-made military-style radio. And it was his gift to me. And I used to sit in my bedroom with this enormous thing. It was the size of a tank. And it had something like 20 shortwave channels and it had loads of medium wave channels and long wave and everything. And this was my kind of window to the world that I could listen to all of this music and all of these voices and all of these sounds. I was just mesmerized by, you know, shortwave going from like one station to another and just hearing the background noise. And then I would... then I would choose certain radio stations like um, American Forces Network and I'd hear all this wonderful rhythm and blues music and it would be fading in and fading out and that kind of added to its romanticism. So I loved radio because of that particular radio. And then a couple of years later for my 13th birthday, my dad bought me, and this was a really weird present for my bar mitzvah, because I hadn't asked for this at all. I hadn't even hinted that I wanted it. And he bought me a Grundig TK20 reel-to-reel tape recorder. And this was the best present ever because I connected up the radio to the tape recorder. 
I learned how to edit with a initially with scissors and cello tape, and then I kind of graduated to a block and a razor blade. And my first sort of memory of really learning how to edit and wanting to be a sort of DJ, a performer, was listening to Alan Freeman on Pick of the Pops and recording him on the Grundig TK20 and then editing out his links and recording my links in it. So in those days, I was actually presenting Pick of the Pops from my own bedroom. Those are, you know, my earliest memories of my love for both radio and for and for music. What was it about Alan Freeman that you loved so much? I think because he sounded larger than life. I loved Fluff's energy. He had the most incredible energy. And in fact, when I was about 17, I must have been 17 or 18, I was in a coffee bar in Soho, where a lot of the record pluggers used to hang out. Because I used to go to a lot of the clubs around there, and, and I loved being in that kind of really scuzzy part of Soho. And one record plugger said that they could draw me a map on a serviette, paper napkin, of how to get from the ground floor of Broadcasting House up the stairs, this is in the old Broadcasting House, obviously, and get into the control room, and then into the continuity suites. So one Sunday, armed with this map in my hand and uh, wearing a jacket and a tie because I thought that that was the right thing to do. And long before they had kind of major security, you know, passes and electronic gates and all that stuff. I just walked into Broadcasting House at sort of three o'clock one Sunday afternoon, sort of waved at the commissioner as if I owned the place, walked up the staircase turned right at the end of this, the first floor, and there was the control room, the main control room to all of BBC Broadcasting. When you think about it now, that someone off the street could have actually got in there that easily, I mean, it's, it's terrifying. And I walked into, there were two continuity suites. I didn't know which one was which or anything. I had no idea. One of them was Alan Freeman's. And his producer, Dennis Jones, was there and they were rehearsing for Pick of the Pops. And I just said to Alan Freeman, because he was my hero, because I'd listened to him all the time, oh, Jesus Christ, this, I can't believe I'm so lucky to be with this man. And I said, hello, Alan, I'm Nicky B. Horn, because that was my stage name at the time. My middle name is Bart. I'm Nicky B. Horn. I want to be a DJ like you. And he went, not off. Okay, just uh, sit back there and uh, make yourself at home. So I sat behind him. And that actually happened for months and months and months on end. Every Sunday I would go. And sitting next to me, and who became a very good friend and then subsequently a Radio 2 producer, uh, was Phil Swern, who I think, Chris, you know. Yes. From Popmaster and for various things he's done for Radio 2. And Phil Swern and I were kind of like uh, Fluff's groupies. We would sit behind this great man as he did the programme and watching Fluff perform when in those days there were lots of tape carts and you were playing records, it wasn't all digital. Watching him was like, was like a ballet. It was choreographed. He, he moved 
beautifully and with incredible fluidity. And that's what I loved about the man. I mean, he was just so incredibly generous. Because, you know, I was a little schnook that had just walked into his studio. And he let me sit there and, and learn. And that was the most wonderful thing. And then when I went to Capital, he joined Capital and we worked together for many years. Wonderful man. What was your first paid job in radio? An interview. I wanted to be an interviewer. I wanted to be a DJ, but I thought that the best way to be a DJ was to be an interviewer. And so much like I did with Radio One or with the BBC at Broadcasting House, I went to British Forces Broadcasting Service, which was then in Dean Stanley Street near the House of Commons, House of Parliament. And I didn't have an appointment or anything, and I asked to speak to a producer. And this wonderful man called Eggy Lay came downstairs and gave me a pass and we went upstairs to his office. And I said, look, you know, I'd love to be a DJ, but can I be an interviewer? And he said, well, just as luck would have it, he said, I do this program where we have interviews, pop interviews. And he started scribbling something on a piece of paper. He said, look, here is a pass for BBC Television Centre. Use this to get in on Thursday, go there on Thursday afternoon from about two o'clock, and if you get me an interview that I will use on the air, I will pay you. How much was he going to pay me? Seven pounds, seven and sixpence. Oh, he also gave me a tape recorder, by the way. He gave me a Ewer tape recorder and a microphone, which was a huge, big portable tape recorder. And that Thursday, I went to Top of the Pops, and I started knocking on dressing room doors. The first person I interviewed, or actually would give me house room, was uh, Olivia Newton-John. And uh, I did this interview. I can't remember what it was like. I can't remember what I asked her. I just remember that she was gorgeous and I was, you know, hopelessly in love. And I did the interview. I, I took the tape back to Eggy. Uh, he put it on the air. And I got my £7.7 seven and sixpence. But the thing is that BFBS had a sharing agreement with Radio 1 so that they could share programs together. And a program on Radio 1 at the time, which was a magazine program called Seen and Heard, presented by Johnny Moran and produced by John Walters, who then went on to produce, or was at the time producing John Peel, um, he wanted this Olivia Newton-John interview. So they replayed it the next week on Radio 1. And that is how I started as an interviewer for Radio 1 through BFPS. But £7.7 seven and sixpence was my first cheque. And how did that get you to capital? I went via UBN. UBN was a radio station in a biscuit factory, United Biscuits Network. And it was a closed-circuit radio station that went from the factory in Osterley, which is now actually the site of Sky Broadcasting. It went from Osterley to Harlesden, Liverpool, Manchester, and Glasgow. And it was a proper professional radio station, UBN. I mean, some of the, the, you know, the, the, the really big DJs, important DJs of my kind of era started at UBN. Roger Scott was there. He was my program controller. Roger said to me, you've got to audition for Capital. 
And I said, but, you know, all the publicity about capital is that they're just going to play kind of like Frank Sinatra because that was the, the, the kind of pre-publicity, which I thought was true, but, of course, it was, it was just to kind of confuse the opposition. I said, I don't really want to. You know, I'm quite happy here. Biscuits. He kept nagging me, Roger, you've got to send a fucking tape in. Because that was Roger, you know, you've got to send a fucking tape. Anyway, in the end, just to keep Roger quiet, because he was, you know, become a, he'd become a very good friend, I sent a tape in. And I got a, a phone call about a couple of weeks later to say, come and do an audition. I did the audition. Dave Cash auditioned me, which was really weird. I mean, wonderful, because I used to love Kenny and Cash on Radio London on the pirate ship Radio London. They were my heroes. And to actually have Dave Cash audition me, you know, even if I hadn't got the job, you know, that was good enough for me, really. And I actually thought that I'd really screwed up the audition. I didn't think I'd done very well. But a couple of weeks later, I got a phone call from Michael Bucht, the programme controller at Capital, to say, come in, we'd like you to do a programme for us. And so I went in and had a, an interview with him. And at the end of the interview, he said, we'd like you to do our rock program. It's called Your Mother Wouldn't Like It. You'll have a producer, but you can choose the majority of the music. And I said, well, you know, how far left field can I go? And he said, well, you can go about as far left as Mott the Hoople. <laughs> now, Michael Blessing knew... Nothing about music. We went much more left than Mott the Hoople. And then on September the 3rd, 1973, on my 23rd birthday, Roger Scott and I walked into the offices of Capital Radio together for the start of this incredible adventure. How was your first show? Terrifying. You know what it's like when you do a first show anywhere. Even if you're kind of experienced. I remember on the first day I was at home and I listened to the start of Capital with Dickie Attenborough saying, this for the very first time is Capital Radio. And then David Simons playing Bridge Over Troubled Water. And I cried because we had done so much work before the start of the station. We dry run and dry run and those dry runs would be edited or evaluated. And then, you know, you'd, you'd go back and do it again and... I cried that morning. And then when I went on air that evening at 6.30, at 6.25, it was just like a blur. I was sitting in the studio on my own, just waiting to go on. Pete Townsend was my very first guest. And he came in at about quarter to seven. And he'd obviously been in the pub across the road beforehand because he was very hyper and having him like really hyper because I'd, I'd known Pete, I'd done a few interviews with him before. So it wasn't like I hadn't met him before, but to have him in such a, a well-oiled mood um, really took away all of my initial nerves. I think part of the, the, the hard part for a first show is not knowing your audience. It's something that takes a good while to, to get to know one another? I think I knew who I was broadcasting to from the very beginning. 
Michael Buck said, there are two rules to this radio station. I want you to tell the truth and I want you to be real. That's it. And I knew that I was broadcasting to people like me, to who loved the music that I loved. It wasn't as if I was being made to play different music, music that I didn't like, music that had been pre-programmed for me. You know, we hand-built every one of those shows, hand-built in the afternoon. We'd go into the record library, we'd pull out albums, we'd go into what was called the listening room, and we'd kind of work out segues and things that would go together and themes and stuff like that. But there was no running order. We used to go on the air, and, and that first programme, even with the chaos of Pete Townsend with us, there was no running order. There was a pile of records down at my feet, and I, I knew what I was going to start with. I always knew what I was going to start with, which was Sly and the Family Stone and I Want to Take You Higher, which was about as subtle as a kick in the crutch. But, you know, there you go. I was young. But every programme was like that. You know, we had an idea of what we would do, but we would just, it would be completely kind of organic. So I, I knew an interesting story, actually, because I want to credit Michael Buck here, who was the pioneer, the architect of Capital Radio, who was the most wonderful human being, the most spiritual man I've ever known, and, and just a, a marvellous man. And they say that radio stations really take on the persona of their programme controller. And in the sense of being cuddly capital, of doing things like Help a London Child, The Job Finder, Flat Share, all those sort of things, that was Michael. That was, um, you know, his kind of ethos. You know, a radio station is there not just to entertain, but it is there to be part of the community, to help the community, to be an integral part of that community. And after I'd been on the air for about a month, maybe six weeks, and I'm working with people like Kenny Everett and Dave Cash and David Simons, you know, these people who had been my heroes on pirate radio. And suddenly I'm working with all of these people and I'm doing a daily show. And Roger Scott, you know, who were, was a little bit older than me, but, you know, an incredibly great broadcaster. And I went to Michael and I said, you know, Michael, I'm having a bit of a crisis of confidence. You know, here I am working with all of these incredible people. And, you know, I, sometimes I think I'm not good enough. And he said, sit down, you little shit. What? Sit down, you little shit. He said, I didn't pick you because you're a good DJ, because you're not. I picked you because you're a nice bloke. Now fuck off and be a nice bloke on air. <laughs> the, the wisest words that have ever been said to me. It served you well, Nicky. Other than Pete Townsend, which other big stars have you loved interviewing? I've been very fortunate, Chris, to have been around at the same time as so many, you know, incredible people were starting their careers. I've been very fortunate to have met so many people. I mean, I suppose that the, the two that 
stand out for me are John Lennon and David Bowie. John Lennon, because I did what many say was quite an important interview when he was in New York, and that was set up by Kenny Everett because John Lennon wanted to talk about, you know, politics and being followed by the CIA or the FBI, rather. And he said to Everett, you know, could you do the interview? And Kenny said, John, darling, it's not my sort of thing, but I know someone who could. And so Ken came into my studio one Friday night and said, darling, would you like to go to New York to interview John? And I said, John who? He said, Lennon, you silly billy. And so I found myself in New York the next week because he wanted to talk about, you know, these very heavy things. And I was, I was terrified. I remember going to his door at the Dakota and my hand was shaking so much that I couldn't actually hit the door properly. But as I, as I tr attempted to hit the door, he must have known somehow that I was on the other side. And he opened the door and, you know, quick smile. He beckoned me in and gave me a hug. And the first thing he said was, I knew you were coming, he said, so I've made some cookies. He said, they're not, you know, instant bake. He said, I've, you know, done the whole thing myself. He said, um, so I've got some chocolate cookies. So I went into the kitchen and he gave me the chocolate cookies and we then went into the living room. And he realised how terrified I was because I'd never met him before. And he was my favourite Beatle. He warmed me up. You know, can you imagine all of the interviews that John Lennon had done over the years? And yet he took the time and the trouble to warm me up. So I was like ready to go when he knew that I could kind of ask him the right kind of questions about the CIA and all that. How did it feel being in a room with John Lennon? It felt surprisingly normal, actually, because he was so down to earth. That's the thing that there is this kind of aura. There's a certain aura about some of these people, these kind of otherworldly people. But because, you know, he'd, he'd made me these cookies and we were sitting on the white carpet and we were eating his cookies and I was drinking his coffee and we were talking about Everett and we were talking about London and we were talking about all sorts of stuff. You know, it was, it was surprisingly kind of, normal. I mean, I don't mean this in a pejorative way at all. I, I didn't feel like I was in the presence of a deity or anything like that. It was just, he was just a bloke and a wonderful, wonderful human being. I mean, the same is true of David Bowie, who is another one of those kind of otherworldly people. I've done a lot of interviews over the years with Bowie. And I suppose the most memorable one was when I was invited to go to Toronto to the opening of, I can't remember which tour it was. I went with the head of RCA and I had said, now previously on the air, and this was really stupid, I said, guess what? Doing a Simon Bates. I'm going to New York next week and I'm going to interview David Bowie and I'm going to bring back this exclusive interview. Only joking, Simon. Only joking. You know I love you. And that was really dumb because I went to Toronto, not New York. I went to Toronto to do the interview with the head of RCA. And bottom line is we didn't get it. We were waiting for like three days. Every time we were supposed to get the interview, we, it, it didn't happen. And I had to come back to London with the tail between my legs and go on air and say, 
you know that exclusive interview that I promised you with David Bowie? I'm really sorry, but I didn't get it. My program controller, the late Aidan Day, went completely ape shit. He, for some reason, actually thought that it was my fault because I was just there having a good time and not, you know, spending as much time as I could trying to get the interview. So I got into a bit of trouble. About four weeks later, I got a phone call late at night at home. Phone goes, hello, hello, Nikki, it's David. David who? David Bowie. I said, oh, fuck off, who is it? No, 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 really, it's David Bowie. Oh, hello, David. He said, look, I heard that you got into a terrible trouble, you know, in Toronto because I couldn't do the interview. I'm really sorry, but I was really strung out. I, you know, I was, I was like really bad on, you know, drugs and I, I couldn't do the interview, couldn't see anyone. He said, but I promise you that when I next come to London, I will do an exclusive interview with you. I promise. I said, well, that, that's fantastic. Thank you. Anyway, fast forward about a month. Uh, the record company called me and said, David's in town, wants to come tonight. And he came into the studio and he had this huge poster which he'd had framed and signed, you know, to Nicky, lots of love, David. And it was the Just a Gigolo poster, which was the film that he starred in. And that was his kind of gift to me. And then he stayed and did the most amazing interview. Someone else, actually, that I... I and I haven't told this story recently. Stevie Wonder. Stevie Wonder is the most unbelievable human being as well. He's got this other worldly quality. And we did an interview at Capitol and it was going so well that we actually overstayed and went into the, the next program because we just overran uh, because it was wonderful. And as we were leaving at about midnight, he said to me, I love it here. He said, it's brilliant. He said, have you got a music studio? And I went, well, yeah, we've got Studio 4 just down the corridor here. He said, can I do some jingles for you? And I went, Stevie Wonder wants to do some jingles. Wow. So we went into the music studio and there was a synthesizer in there. And we sat him down at the synthesizer and he messed around. And we had a 16-track recording equipment and proper, you know, all the proper outboard stuff as well. And he spent like two hours recording these amazing jingles for Capital. And I remember walking out of there at two o'clock in the morning into the Euston Road, Stevie with his manager, Keith, singing some of these jingles that he just made. You know, he was kind of bobbing away on the Euston Road with his head going from side to side, going, capital in tune with London. That was incredible. That was incredible. Unreal, Nicky. In 1995, you went to Virgin. What was Virgin like at that time? It was a different radio station from the one that Tommy Vance and Richard Skinner had started. They had started to become more formatted, and it was the first radio station really where I was playing someone else's music. I did have some input into the music, I have to say, but not as much as I wanted. And I was never really entirely comfortable there it was a different kind of presentation for me 
because the figures weren't doing very well, they brought in a consultant, an Australian consultant, who brought with him his own head of music. Now, this guy was called Skins. This was his nickname. Now, Skins, bless him, who was programming a rock radio station. How can I put it? He knew fuck all about rock music. And all he did was program by numbers. So I remember asking him about music. He admitted that he'd never heard Pet Sounds, ever. I believe Pet Sounds was released in Australia. They sent me to New York to do an interview with the Rolling Stones. All expenses paid, record company paid for it all. Four or five days in New York, fabulous, wonderful. See the Stones at Madison Square Garden. I mean, you know, what's not to like? I did this interview with Jagger. And one of the things that we were talking about was the fact that they were playing, you know, these huge places, Madison Square Garden, not that huge, but huge enough, and how he wanted really to go back and the Stones to do, like, small club dates. He'd love to do that. So when I got back to London with this interview, I was producing the interview, putting music into it. I thought, well, what track could I put in for that section? And it would be, I know it's obvious, it's a cliché, but it would be you can't always get what you want, which I thought was, you know, sensible uh, for that. And it wasn't on the playlist. It wasn't on the core of the playlist. Because in those days, it wasn't all digital. It was some digital, but it was it was uh, some CDs. CDs and a mixture of other. And I went to Skins and I said, look, Skins, I've got this great interview with Mick Jagger. You know, I want to play. You can't always get what you want because he's talking about wanting to play in clubs and he... You know, they're forced to play big gigs, and he went onto the keyboard. You can't always get what you want. Uh, just let me have a look at that, mate. Uh, and he goes to the screen, he goes, no, nah, sorry, mate, you can't play. It doesn't test well. Doesn't <laughs> test well. What the <laughs> fuck? And then, you know, it was like, I was pleased, actually, when Chris Evans fired me. What about Boom now? How are you enjoying that? I love Boom. I absolutely love Boom. I'd fallen out of love with radio. I hadn't done radio for a, a long time. Well, not that long, but I hadn't done radio for a while. I didn't want to work someone else's playlist. I didn't want to work for people that I didn't like. You know, I'd worked for people at Planet Rock, and I loved the initial period of Planet Rock, hated the, the last period of Planet Rock. I worked for Team Rock, which was great to begin with, but then, you know, they ran out of money and there were people there that I really didn't care for in management. And so, I, you know, my time of life, I thought, well, why do I want to actually be working with people that I don't like and respect? And if you're going to employ Nicky Horn, you employ Nicky Horn because, you know, I have a certain kind of knowledge and I, you know, I play a certain type of music. So don't hire me and then try and make me into something else because it goes back to what Michael Buck said, be real and tell the truth. And so when Boom came along, because I know David Lloyd and I've known David for you know many years and Phil Riley, who is the kind of CEO, the brains, the business brains of it, um, and I knew him and respected him. And because I could work from home, 
And, you know, here I am in my, you know, little studio here on the first floor of my house. I'm surrounded by all my books, a lot of my vinyl, loads of my CDs. There's my memorabilia on the wall. To be able to, and this actually goes back, Chris, to what you were saying about your first show and knowing the audience when you asked me about Capital. Because from the very moment that I went on to Boom, I knew exactly who my listener was. It's just me grown up. You know, it's me back then. And now we've all grown up. You know, we've got grandkids. You know, we we take pills at night. You know, we've we've got, you know, ailments and I've got hearing aids. You know, I knew exactly who my listener is. And basically, they just leave me alone. They leave me alone to play the music and just get on with it. And I love it. And we seem, <laughs> by God's good grace, to have kind of hit the zeitgeist. I think a lot of things have helped us. Radio 2 and their changes have certainly helped us. So thanks very much for that. Uh, BBC Local Radio and the changes there, they've really helped us. So thanks for that too. But I think, you know, there is there is something, there's something special about Boom. I don't quite know what it is, if you see what I mean. I think if I analyse it too much, it'll sort of go away. So I don't want to analyse it too much. DJ. How to DJ. How to DJ with Chris Hawkins. Okay, Nikki, it's time for the first of your five picks from 45 in this record box beside me. All the questions on 45's Thieves. I'll dip in, you say one up or one out. Okay, off we go. How much do you prepare? How much do I prepare? I think the majority of, of a show, the time that you spend on a show, should be in prep. I, I've always been a big believer in prep. So for my two-hour boom show, which is on from four till six, every day, I will probably prep about 40 minutes to an hour. Um, the shows aren't live. The shows, the way that we have to do them at the moment is that we do voice tracks. So I sit here, I've got a computer screen in front of me, which is unique for Boom, with the running orders on, which we have kind of prearranged beforehand. And if there's things in the running order... I always ask for things to go in the running order. If there are things that come up in the rotation that I don't like, then I have right of veto. So, I, yeah, I spend more on the prep than I actually do on the recording because if you're recording voice tracking, a, as you well know, Chris, if you're voice tracking a two-hour program, you can do that probably in about 20 minutes. Yeah. But it's the prep that's the important stuff. What sort of stuff do you prepare I prepare in my head stories. So I'll look at the running order and I'll see that there might be, oh, I don't know, Rolling Stones give me shelter. And I'll think, oh, right, I can tell that Mary Clayton story about how Mary Clayton, who sang on Give Me Shelter, you know, recorded that late at night in her hair curlers when she was seven months pregnant. And so I'll just make a note, you know, that's the story I want to tell. I mean, I think that the program, the, the, the way that I do the program on Boom is that I will always try and put the music into context. But there's also other things like, you know, yesterday 
we've got a new puppy, wonderful puppy called Lola, who's a cockapoo, and she's lovely, but she eats everything. So she was in here yesterday trying to eat all the wires under my desk here. Now, I've got like a million wires under here. I mean, and it's incredible that, you know, she didn't electrocute herself. So, you know, that's a story that I want to tell because I, I, I want to tell the kind of the, the John Peel type home truths that all of us boomers go through. Or, you know, the fact that I've had this chest infection now for 10 days and I got the chest infection from my four-year-old granddaughter who's been living with us for the last four weeks because they were having a new bathroom fitted and she has been coughing her guts out in my face for the last four weeks. You know, it's <laughs> wonderful having grandchildren. They give us so much pleasure, but they also give us all of their germs. So, I mean, it's that <laughs> sort of thing that goes into my head that somehow gets kind of like regurgitated uh, into a program. Real life. Going back into the box now for you, Nikki, for a second question. When? What is your best moment on a stage? My best moment on a stage? I think one of the most memorable was introducing Led Zeppelin at Nebworth. No, actually, there's a, there's another one that's more memorable, thinking about it. I mean, I loved introducing Led Zeppelin at Nebworth. I can remember exactly what I said. Go on. Ladies and gentlemen, Messrs Bonham, Jones, Page and Plant, your mother wouldn't like it. Ladies and gentlemen, Led Zeppelin. Wow. But I also, the, the other memorable one, actually, which is where, which was really tricky, was when I introduced the Rolling Stones at Nebworth because Leonard Skinner had gone on in the lunchtime and they were brilliant. They just blew everyone off the stage. And the next band that was due on was 10CC. Why 10CC were ever booked to do the Rolling Stones and Leonard Skinner at Nebworth? No one knows. There must have been something, you know, dodgy going on. But anyway, they they refused to go on because no one could follow Leonard Skinner. Anyway, the, the gig got later and later and later and later. And there were 250,000 people there in front of me, the sea of denim. And it got to the point where the curfew was just about to come in and the Stones hadn't taken the stage. I was standing at the side of the stage with my disco unit and this policeman came to me and he said, you know, it looks like there's going to be a bit of a riot. You need to kind of calm the, the crowd down. So, I, okay, all right. So I think I played tubular bells three times in a row, <laughs> which did calm the crowd. And then, just as curfew was coming on, I got this message. I, I went backstage and I said to the um, Stones tour manager, I said, what the fuck is going on? I can't keep this crowd, you know, forever. They're going to they're gonna riot. What is going on? Why are they so late? And he said, don't worry, man. He said, Keith's new blood hasn't arrived by helicopter from Switzerland yet. It's that joke, that old joke that, you know, Keith you needed a blood transfusion before he would go on stage. It was a funny joke. It wasn't true. But when I actually did go on stage and I was told what to say, I was told you, will, you can only say this. Ladies and gentlemen, the Rolling Stones. 
<laughs> that was it. That that made up for the whole aggravation of the day. I, I'm uh, I'm not sure there's anyone else on this planet that can say they've introduced both Led Zepp and the Stones on stage. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I introduced Led Zeppelin as well at the famous gig at Earl's Court. Alan Freeman did one night. Tommy Vance did another. Kid Jensen did one. And I did one. Yeah. I mean, as I said at the at the beginning of this, Chris, you know, I, I have been incredibly fortunate. You know, I was... I was doing my thing when all of these people were kind of beginning to do theirs. And so we've all kind of grown up together. And it was the most wonderful era to be doing what I was doing. I mean, I never, I never planned on this as a career. I wanted to go into television as a TV director. That was the idea. I had a place at Sussex to do English and drama. And I took a year out. And during that year, I, I did work for a mobile disco called the Gas Tomato. And also that was when I started working, or at the end of that year, started doing some stuff for BFBS. And then when I went to the Top of the Pop studio for the first time and walked into Television Centre and walked into that studio, or when I, was, when I walked into Broadcasting House and sat in the con with Alan Freeman and sat behind this great man, I just knew that this is where I wanted to be. You know, I didn't want to be in a, a gallery and be a director. I wanted to be in a radio studio and I wanted to be in this radio studio. And, you know, thank God, years later, I was. It's, um, it's amazing, Nikki. you've shared a room with John Lennon, had a, a late night in a studio with Stevie Wonder, introduced that serpent. And uh, the Stones on stage had an apology from David Bowie. What a life, what a story, what a career. Nicky, back into the box for question three. Say when, I'll pull one Okay, out. now. Question three is, is there a secret to being a great DJ? Is there a secret to being a great DJ? I think I go back to what I said earlier about Michael Bucht, you know, the two rules that he imposed on us. And actually in the dry runs, I was talking about the dry runs of Capital, where we would record programmes. He made us have a picture of someone that we loved in front or beside the microphone. And he said, talk to them. There's only ever one person listening. Be real and tell the truth. And I think it's it's being real that the microphone, this microphone, will find you out if you're not telling the truth. It amplifies lies. The listener can tell when it's not authentic. So much of today's radio is inauthentic. It's people trying to act the role that they think they should. Hi, I'm a DJ, and you're listening to, you know, that's not being real. And the audience, the listener, can pick that up. 
And I think that's the secret to being a good DJ. And it goes back also to Michael Buck. You know, you're not a good DJ. I didn't hire you because you're a good DJ. You're a nice bloke. Now fuck off and be a nice bloke on air. You know, it's that. <laughs> it, it really is as simple as that, I think. Nicky, back into the box for question four. Okay. Blah, 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 now. Have nerves ever got the better of you? Have nerves ever got the better of me? Not really. I don't really suffer from nerves, but what I do get, oh, it's terrible admission, I do get very, very cold hands when I'm nervous. So it doesn't go to my throat or my stomach. It goes to my hands. So if I'm about to interview someone who I really you know, admire and, and I'm nervous about it, my hands go incredibly cold. And so I have to kind of warm them up on my jeans because I know if I'm going to shake their hand, I don't want them to shake, you know, a really cold, clammy hand. So that's <laughs> that's when nerves get to me is is just through my through my fingers. <laughs> so how cold were they when you were knocking on John Lennon's door? Oh, ice, ice cold, yeah. ice cold. Actually, all of me on that particular occasion, all of me was trembling. I can only imagine Nikki back into the box for your final question. Okay, now. When do you wish you'd said no? <laughs> when do I wish I'd said no? When my first wife asked me to marry her. <laughs> That's true. That's absolutely true. When else would I should I have said no? It's a, very, it's a very difficult question to answer, should I have said no? I mean, because even when I did things that I regret and I should initially have said no, I actually have learned from them. So, for instance, when I was asked to do an interview with Van Morrison and I knew that he was a really difficult customer, I should have said no. But actually I said yes because I wanted to meet him because I loved his music. I love his music. But he turned out to be a complete prat. And he was horrible on air. And I had to ask him to leave a live radio studio. But I learnt something from that, which was if I'd have had a bit more patience and if I'd had a little bit more maturity, I could have got something really good out of him because I should have just been patient and I'm, I think it would have all come good. So I try and learn from my mistakes apart from my first marriage. Having this time with you, Nikki, has felt really special. It's a long time since we've seen one another, and I've always had so much respect for you. Your stories are amazing. They were your five questions from the box. I've got one last question for you. There's some kind of world-ending event, and you have to play the last three records on Earth. What would they be? Well, I think, obviously... Uh, it's the end of the world as we know it. Who else has chosen that? I don't know that's been chosen that often. Oh, okay. It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel and fine. And I feel I fine. Yeah. yeah. Would you? Yeah, actually. Yeah. You know, if it's inevitable, I've been very fortunate as I... If I, as I've said, in my career and in my life. Embrace it. Yeah. What else? Je ne regrette rien. 
Um, I'd play that. Uh, I think that's the the original Edith Piaf uh, version from 78 with all the wonderful crackles on it. And the third one, the third one, probably the live version of Comfortably Numb from Pulse because it's about 13 minutes and that would just give me a little bit more time. Nikki, thank you so much. You're more than welcome. It's so lovely to talk to you again. Now, Nikki, fuck off and carry on being a nice bloke. <laughs> Very good. Thank you. <laughs> How to DJ. How to DJ. Thanks for listening. Please remember to follow us wherever you get your podcast from. <laughs>